Hello, I'm Rupert Soskin. And I'm Michael Bott. And this is the Standing With Stones Megalithic Podcast. This podcast is only made possible by monthly donations from our listeners who have supported us through patreon.com. You can become one of our patrons for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash standingwithstones. In this, which is only the second of our regular monthly shows, as well as our regular features, hold on to your hats, we'll be discussing one of the more contentious speculations from the film we made ten years ago, the possibility of henges as arenas for blood sports. And a bit more soberly, perhaps, we're going to be talking about the revelations that have been made over the last 12 years at the Ness of Brodga on Orkney, in one of the most important archaeological excavations in the world. So welcome to episode two of the Standing With Stones megalithic podcast. Seems like no time at all since we were all being excited about doing episode one, yet here we are, episode two. Thank you all, our listeners, our followers on Facebook and Twitter for your engagement and feedback, and a special thank you, of course, to the wonderful people who have become our patrons and are helping us towards producing more content and one day maybe making another film. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think it's important to say here that one of the things that's really coming out of all this, because you know, Mike and I have been certainly publicly away from uh, from Stones for some time. And it's amazing you, when we get stuck into doing the podcasts, we're researching and uh, uh, and it's wonderful the amount of stuff that's coming out that really does give us uh, ammunition for the next film when that uh, when that does come about. You know, your yeah, really on f- that score is... It really feels like there's a, a story to tell now that's developing mm. in the background, doesn't it? Yeah. It really does, yes. Yes, it's great. But in the meantime, we will be producing more varied material for the podcast and the in-between bits and stuff exclusively for our supporters as we go along. Uh, One thing I recorded was that um, my piece about Is Durrington Walls a Farm? Uh, mm. a few days ago. So that's an example of a of an extra. But we intend to do more things like more films, you know, the odd um, pop-up on Facebook. And uh, talking of which, um, we'd like to add a new thing in. Yes, we, we really would. It's something that we want to do. Now, we have the, the podcast, as you know, the podcast comes out at the beginning of every month. And what we're going to do is in the middle of the month, it's going to be the second Wednesday, of every month, we're going to do a Facebook Live broadcast where uh, where all of you people can you can come on uh, to the live uh, show and you can actually um, join in. You know, send us questions or come on and uh, and have some dialogue. We could call it a Q and A, really. We could call it a Q and A or a forum, maybe. A forum? A forum is good. <laughs> we could. And all manner of other things. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, your involvement uh, on that is, uh, you know, do do get stuck in and, you know, come and join the fun. Excellent. Yeah, so we'll be announcing that in detail on Facebook soon. Um, yeah, but basically, I think, as Rupert said, um, we intend to broadcast every second Wednesday of the month, probably about 8 o'clock UK time, and uh, we'll see what happens. Um, the show will be open to all while it's live, um, but we will archive the recordings of the shows and make those available exclusively to our Ballymenock level 
and above patrons on Patreon. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want to find out about becoming one of our patrons, or indeed what the heck Ballymenic level means, uh, the address to go to is patreon.com slash standingwithstones, as I said in the uh, introduction. So with that, let's go over to the news desk, where, surprise, surprise, we find Rupert Soskin. Yes, here I am at the news desk. Uh, something I will say right up the top. Uh, you might remember last month that uh, one of our news items was the discovery of a piece of jawbone in northern Israel, which pushed back our out-of-Africa timeline by about 50,000 years. Well, we're finding more and more that archaeologists keep discovering things which push human history further and further back into the past. So we've decided to introduce a new regular section called, not surprisingly, Pushing Back the Boundaries. And we're going to be looking specifically at discoveries that force us to change the way we think about our ancestors and the way they lived. So uh, so there you are. With, the, uh, with that in mind, the first pushing back the boundaries item is uh, it's actually old news and new news at the same time and this is the shigia idol shigia how is that old news and new news at the same time you speak in with forked tongue <laughs> i speak in riddles uh, it's old news and new news because the shigia idol was actually discovered uh, in 1894. Ah. So it's not remotely new news from that point of view. Uh, it's called the Shigir Idol because it was actually dug up in the Shigir peat bog, which is in the Middle Urals in Russia. And uh, it, was, it was actually dug up by gold miners. And it's absolutely huge. It is, uh, it's the figure of a man a very tall man, breathtakingly, it stood, uh, when it was found, it stood five metres tall, 17 feet. I mean, it's colossal, this yep. thing. It's got six faces carved onto it. Admittedly, some of them are not so easy to uh, to see. It's, uh, you know, it's quite heavily engraved, uh, you know, with geometric uh, patterns and stuff. Mm -hmm. But this huge figure of a man... And, but how, if uh, it was discovered in eighteen in the nineteenth century, how come it's news now? Well, the reason it's news now is that uh, it was only in the nineteen nineties. So this is still not new news. It was only in the nineteen nineties, with you know just the way technology romps forward, that carbon dating became a thing. So they carbon dated a couple of pieces. Because um, it was, you know, it was broken, had to be put back together again. So they carbon dated a couple of pieces, and dated it to a staggering for the time nine thousand nine hundred years old. And again, carbon dating has become more and more refined and uh, and accurate over the last thirty whatever years. So they decided to test it again. This is just last year. And the new tests have put it at 11,500 years old, which is absolutely Brilliant. staggering. Now, the, the exciting yeah. thing about this 
is that, you know, when, when you think, of, you know, we talk about, most of the stuff that we talk about is megalithic. And so we're, uh, you know, we see so much stuff that we understand a little better from the Neolithic and going into the Bronze Age. But this is yeah. almost twice as far back. It's staggering that the only thing we know of that's more or less contemporary with this is the early phases of Gebekli Tepe in Turkey. Uh, and, oh, right. and, and we can't correlate this, uh, you know, the two because you oh, know we're sure. talking about how many thousand miles further northeast is you know is this than Gebekli Tepe up in the Urals? You're asking me, but <laughs> it's a long way. <laughs> but um, but the thing is that the, partly it's something else we've found that is that old, and also yeah. that here's something in wood. We never find wooden artifacts going back that long because they've all rotted away. And it's uh, it's the, the wonders of peat bogs. They'll just yeah. preserve stuff. So uh, we're going to put links. Obviously, as usual, we'll put links to any of these things on the uh, on the website, so you can uh, you can check out and uh, you know follow up on any of this research if it uh, piques your interest. But uh, yes, I just thought that that was uh, a staggering thing to put in there. Uh, Can I just say actually, a couple of yes. a couple of th- things about that before we mm. sort of sign up? It's it's great to follow it and and uh, have a link to it. But these are the things that um, pop into my mind about it. You know, it is um, what looks like some kind of an idol, uh, you know, mm. a totem or something something like that. Uh, and uh, although you know we don't like assuming that things are for for ritual or spiritual or ceremonial uh, purposes. But um, if I was forced to choose, if I was forced to say what I thought, that Mm. it seems most likely. Mm. And the other interesting thing is about Urals. There, we're about as far as the sea you can get on any landmass on the earth, I think. Um, And we're not far off, or are we still in the Ice Age? End of the Ice Age, certainly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. End of the Ice Age, yeah. yeah. So these were not people of the sea. These were definitely, certainly people of the of the woods. Yes. Um, but it, it just one little interesting thing, it just threw up for me the idea that why from, um, you know, backwards from uh, 2,500 years BC, mm. uh, everything's got a, a lithic. <laughs> We've got the, you know... The Paleolithic, Mesolithic, Neolithic. Yes, I'm thinking, why? Because that's uh, that's when stone use uh, became a, a a thing. Well, yes, but wait. The, 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 my point is that we're probably using stone in order to use wood. <laughs> Okay, I see what you Do you get see to. what I mean? Yes, yeah, I do. I do. It, it may be oh. just skewing our minds a little bit. About mm. you know weighting things, it, maybe maybe it should be called the Flint Age. That would be more accurate. I don't know. Mm. You know, but we, it's just a, it's just a thought that popped into my head with reference to this. I didn't want to go on too long, but I thought that was interesting. <laughs> maybe anyway. that's something we can explore in a future podcast. Yeah. In the meantime, follow the links um, and uh, have a look and see what you you think. All right. So, on to the regular news items, and uh, what are we kicking off with today, Mike? I do believe that we're kicking off the regular news item with a crystal dagger. 
Oh, yes, 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 yes. This From, is in Spain. Uh, southwestern Spain. Indeed. Yeah. This, uh, it's, um, uh, it's near Seville, actually, down in the south. Uh, this is uh, uh, Valencina de la Concepcion uh, down there. Well uh, done. It's uh, one of the... <laughs> <laughs> it's one of the Tholos-style uh, burials. and So it's the, the beehive-style burials. Some of them... It sounds small, actually. Some of the Spanish beehive... Uh, style uh, burials. They're massive things, very impressive. But this particular one is quite unique in that they have unearthed a whole load of crystal weapons. And uh, one of the pieces in there was a stunning crystal dagger. Um, It's just uh, nothing like it. Uh, I've never seen anything like it before. Uh, there were arrowheads and spear tips. I've got a picture of the dagger in front of me now, the dagger blade, and it is per- it is so beautiful. It's perfectly proportioned, perfectly symmetrical. Yes. Just breathtaking workmanship. Uh, a magnificent yeah. piece of yeah. work by any any work. And yeah. it, it's just apart from the fact that yeah, it, it sets your mind going in so many different areas. Really, of you know, who was this character who had uh, a whole load of crystal weaponry? buried with him you know but but one of the other aspects of of this burial is that what they found actually in the tomb there were 25 uh, people in there and only one man all the rest of them were women oh. and uh, analysis has shown that they were poisoned oh really they drank a poison that the the assumption is that they uh, they drank a, a poison substance i'm not quite sure where they get that but you know I mean, we, we've seen that in, oh you know, in a, a number of uh, cultures around the world that uh, you know whether it's uh, the servants who are buried with uh, with somebody or uh, you know look at some of the indian cultures where a, a woman is uh, is killed you know to uh, to accompany her uh, deceased husband into the afterlife that sort of thing Remarkable discovery. I, I didn't realise this about the uh, the bodies and the poison. I mean, my goodness, you've got not only uh, uh, an archaeological story, you've got the beginnings of a novel, <laughs> an, <laughs> an historical and an prehistorical novel, if you, if you want, yes. But the other thing I was picking up from it as well, um, you said 25 bodies. Interestingly, there are 25 crystal arrowheads in that uh, burial as well, as long as uh, a few microliths and uh, and a, a crystal rock crystal form, as if it was uh, about to be made into something. Do you know what? I, I had not registered that at all. 25 mm. arrowheads and 25 people. Yep. Yep. Yeah, I need to double-check on that, and maybe, dear listeners, you better double-check on that as well uh, <laughs> by following yes. the link that we'll leave, leave, be, leave below. But uh, interestingly enough for us, of course, this um, uh, time-wise, uh, in terms of dating, um, this falls into really what is our area of interest. We're talking end of Neolithic, coming into the Bronze Age, Copper Age, Yeah, 3000 yeah. 3, BC, it's dated... Uh yeah. At least, at least that far back. Yeah. Uh, um, but the interesting thing is, is working, you know, um, artifacts made of rock crystal anyway, in the, in the first place. They're very, very mm. rare. Um, I believe yeah. um, that uh, rock crystal uh, artifacts have been found in just 33 other sites and all in that sort of basically south 
west area of Spain in similar kinds of <laughs> burials. But this is the only one with any um, uh, <clears throat> large number of artifacts in it. The, the other ones have got yeah. perhaps one or two and probably only microliths or something like this. This... This one, this burial, with all this going on, speaks to wealth and or power. Yes. Centred around this area, which is uh, very close to, if not part of, uh, Seville now. It's an interesting part of Spain, generally. I think if you if you look at the burials down there, there you can you can reasonably assume that there was a good deal of. Uh, of power or certainly importance you know the the yeah. the, the burials are pretty lavish yeah. uh, the other thing i picked up that alongside the fact that rock crystal is found in that area that concentrations of other exotic uh, materials for example gold uh, and amber sort of center around this particular area which mm. you know Food for thought. Definitely food for thought. And if, if you, uh, listeners, if you're going to pursue the uh, the links to this particular uh, find, that it's also worth bearing in mind the amount of grave goods that, apart from all this crystal uh, wonderment, uh, the grave goods in there, the, 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 so many beads, for example, and that's no yeah. mean feat either, you know, amber beads... Well, you think going hmm. back uh, then, what, what were they using to drill holes into amber? You know, it's yep. uh, just so many things that we tend not to think that much about. You know, that the yeah. The, yeah. the craftsmanship and skills involved in this are, are breathtaking. Yeah, have we have we said enough about that for a mo- for the moment? I think we've said enough yeah. about that. Shall we? Uh, like, like we said, if you want to find out more, follow the links um, on which we'll post in below on Patreon, on the website, uh, and on uh, Facebook. Um, so that's it. I'll Nothing you else you want to say there, Rupert? On that, no, I think I'm done. No. On that, I'm going right. to uh, toss cool. over to you with. The- uh, Go on, we, what, have, what, have, what have divers found, Michael? Well, they've found, and, and this is wonderful, we're moving from the uh, sublime, in terms of uh, materials, moving from the sublime to the um, slightly mundane. Um, divers <laughs> have discovered a 5,000-year-old shoe in a Swiss lake, and the 5,000-year-old shoe, Rupert, is made of... It's made of bark. Do you know... Tree bark. Yeah, I, I, I'm finding that hard to visualise somehow. Well, I think you, you need to put this uh, in a context. It's not bark as in, you know, a rigid shoe like a clog. It's it's actually from the inner section of the bark. Ah. It's been made into a fibre. So it's a woven shoe, but it's from tree bark. Uh, so it had, a, I, I suppose, it had a toughness to it that maybe some other... Uh, cordage plants wouldn't have had, uh, so it's it's very beautifully woven, mm. but uh, but nevertheless it must have been a very tough piece of uh, piece of footwear. Yeah. It's just lovely that they found it at the bottom of a lake. So often these things mm-hmm. are uh, well, they're just long yeah. gone. These it's a bit like the Shiger Idol in the yeah. peat bog. We lose these things, and so to have something preserved. At the bottom of a lake, it's um, it's and really uh, just the just the one item, nothing else besides. 
As far as I'm aware, nothing <laughs> else besides. Yeah. Uh, Another enigmatic story. Indeed, an enigmatic story. What's lovely about this, though, is that when you have something... See, we're used to, you know, whether it's when we find a, a new site, it's exciting, uh, or, or grave goods, whatever. The thing is that when it's a shoe, mm. you know, that it, it's personal. Yeah. You know, that that you're you're actually touching somebody specific, even though, you know, you don't know who they were or whatever, but it's it's a person as opposed to things. Do you know what I mean? Well, yes, I mean, it completely changes your perspective. Uh, un- quite unconsciously, in a way, um, it, it makes them human beings, makes them real. You know, yes. Um, yes. he had a shoe, she had a shoe, I have shoes. <laughs> you know, it's as simple as that. You can relate. All of a sudden, you can you can relate. You know, to the problems of tying your laces, <laughs> and you know, but it, but it was the most powerful thing. You know, right at the end of the film, uh, uh, right of, at the end of our film, standing with stones, when you were holding between your fingers that uh, wonderful um, hematite, is it? A uh, black hematite yeah, uh, it, uh, it, button. It, it really did blow yeah. me away. That little button. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, same thing. I've got buttons. She, he had buttons. Yes. We're the same. It's, We're the, people. it's the personal yeah. thing that you, yeah, yeah. So anyway, um, so is that all we've got for the news? Yeah. Well, there's, uh, there's um, yes, megalithic news on, uh, on on that. I, yes, I I think uh, we'll leave those links and uh, and we can move on to meteor things. We can move on. To, that's a bit of a pun, you know. Yes, so literally moving on to meteor things, <laughs> blood sports. When Rupert and I set out to make Standing With Stones, I mean, we didn't have an agenda of ideas that we wanted to impose on the stones. Um, the only thing we had going, and the clue is in the name of the film, really, we wanted to see if being with the stones, if the stones had anything to say to us. Was there anything that we could learn from, you know, having this unique experience that we were going to have? We would be visiting over 100 monuments in a span measured in just months. So having that experience, would it illuminate what uh, we already know? In the end, despite that unique experience of travelling about the place, um, it really was in the six months after that in the six months of post-production, that certain pennies began to drop uh, about what we'd seen. Um, and especially for me, when I was creating the um, the CGI recreations of the large henges of Avebury and Stanton Drew. When we were standing there, standing in the green um, with these monstrous, enigmatic spaces before us it was one of the times when i think we most wanted a time machine didn't to travel back and really uh, try to uh, try to decipher what the Mm. driver was to use all those manors digging such deep ditches creating such large mounds such large banks and I think having the personal experience of watching these places come to life on my computer screen as I was creating these images and animations, um, that 
the scale was far more than we were conscious of when we were actually at the places because, of course, the ditches have filled up and the banks have been worn down over, mm. over time. And they began to look spectacular. And the more I looked at them, the more they began to look like great arenas, the henges of Avebury and of Stanton Drew. Yes, I, I think it, it just it became increasingly apparent, didn't it, that it, it, it only really made sense to us when we started to think of them in terms of being arenas. Um, you, you know, it, it's long been said that henges couldn't have been defensive because, uh, you know, if you've got a, a plateau inside a raised bank then any invading force, however tiny that force may be, you know, anybody on the inside would have just been sitting ducks in the, uh, in the middle of the, uh, the circle. Uh, yeah. So, it, it, you know, banks, well, it does. It's, it's just, uh, it makes sense to have banks set up there as places for spectators. That's right. And um, on top of that, there were two other aspects that really combined with what seemed to be obvious in front of our faces, that these were giant arenas. And, and that is, I'd been reading Mike Pitt's book, Henge World, uh, in which mm. he talks at length about um, excavations and discoveries at um, Durrington Walls, not far from Stonehenge, as you know. Mm. One particular aspect of it that um, they that they had uncovered um, evidence of uh, pig slaughter and uh, pig consumption alongside cattle and sheep and so on and so forth. But the curious fact was that the method that had been used to slaughter the pigs was not through any kind of normal process that you would imagine, you know, the simple slicing of the throat or the you know, whatever, these hogs had been shot with a bow and arrow within the space of Durrington Walls before being eaten, before being feasted upon. And, and the third aspect of this was the surprising one from Stanton Drew particularly, and is in evidence at Durrington Walls as well, is these um, massive um, wooden posts erected in concentric circles, particularly at Stanton Drew with the size. We're talking about posts that are uh, a metre wide and posted, what, a metre away from each other? Perhaps a bit more than that. But Yeah, yeah, the, 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 it's all very geometric. Mm. So it's they're a metre wide and a metre spaced. Yeah. And I can't remember exactly how many posts, but it's a mass of wooden posts creating what could only be described if looked on from the outside as looking like a, a forest. There seems to be, the yes. uh, we'd normally interpret um, post holes as um, implying that there was some kind of building there. But if you entered this building, there'd be nothing to do in the building. There's no space to do anything that seems remotely uh, practical um, inside there. So... Mm. Um, in my mind, it was a case of what habits would carry over from being a hunter, or indeed, as we still do, celebrate hunting. How would you, as close to the land as you are, how would you still celebrate hunting? And the idea just struck that here we have a, an artificial forest where you can recreate the hunt 
Indeed. Indeed. I think it's very interesting when you when you look at it uh, in relation to you know, the sorts of blood sports that still exist today. Uh, so bullfighting, for example, uh, that over however many thousand years where you ceased to need to hunt in a forest, you know, gradually you were creating clearings and uh, and actually... Uh, farming animals as opposed to going out and hunting them in forest uh, environments. Uh, so to have bullfighting as a, a legacy, if you like, it, you know, to me, that's what yeah. what remains there. Uh, it's just an extension of the same practice, I think. But the interesting thing was this wasn't a thought process that had just been taking place in my brain as I was <laughs> looking at these... Um, uh, spectacular arenas uh, coming to life, but you quite independently were coming to uh, the same, if not a similar um, position. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It, 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 in fact, it was very reassuring for both of us, wasn't it? That uh, it was. Uh, yeah. I remember where I was when you phoned up, <laughs> <laughs> and we, we both said it's blood sports. And uh, yes, it's when you. <laughs> When you're coming from ever so slightly different angles, because I, I was looking at, um, well, you were looking at the posts, yeah, and uh, and I was looking at the banks and ditches, basically, uh, all um, all tied into the same sites, and realizing that uh, that well, actually, they they just bounce off each other. You're left with an artificial forest that that uh, spectators can look into. Yeah. Yeah. And watch the hunting going on. I, I think it's it, it's worth uh, pointing out one other aspect of this as well, and that's that if you if you go back to the Neolithic, so we've not long come out of uh, a culture that was based on hunting, and getting into the Bronze Age, we got into farming, including agricultural farming and smaller homesteads, things like that. That. Uh, in terms of sport, because you know that one of one of humanity's greatest drivers is competition, and uh, and and so to shift from a spectator sport or a spectacle that was watching hunting going on, that gradually in the Bronze Age when it became we we were no longer showing our prowess by hunting, we were showing our prowess by fighting mm. because in the bronze age when farming kicked off it was the first time that people had needed to defend their own territory uh, so it meant that it was now man fighting man as opposed to beast and that's when arenas started to become more gladiatorial yeah uh, you know, so so we ended up with the Roman arenas and what have you when we were just uh, looking at blokes killing blokes. Well, no, in the Colosseum, uh, we're also looking at uh, well, in animals. The Colosseum, they were insane. Uh, they? Absolutely <laughs> insane. Um, we're talking about. I think Nero was amongst the worst, wasn't he? Or was it Caligula? Um, I don't Nero. Yeah. I think, but uh, we're talking about animals killing animals, animal on animal yeah. um, action. In fact, <laughs> uh, we're digressing slightly, but the Romans were responsible. for for a massive depletion of um, um, exotic wild animals uh, in the north of Africa yes. um, at that time. Anyway, that's uh, that's several <laughs> millennia on from where we're talking about. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's, uh, that's our position. That's our proposition, um, which uh, we'd love people to um, um, weigh in on, of 
course. And, uh, you know, it's not going to be a popular mm. one with uh, everybody. But I think it moves the conversation on a lot. And it's, I think it's moved it on a lot with us because bringing the practicality of uh, animals into the subject, um, it has made us look, in terms of animals generally, and particularly animal husbandry itself, and what impact that might have on what we see uh, in the structures of ancient monuments uh, generally, whether it is another useful lens to be looking at some of the unexplained aspects of, um, of our ancient monuments, which yes. is a, a whole other conversation, but I think we don't really have time to examine that here, and uh, perhaps we'll leave that and change gear and uh, move a few hundred miles north. So, yes, talking about livestock, it's something that we actually mentioned it uh, briefly in the last podcast because one of the things that had come out of Durrington Walls, excavations at uh, Durrington in Wiltshire, was they discovered that loads of the cattle came from Scotland. And uh, and that really ties in very neatly with, uh, with the excavations and extraordinary work that's been going on over the last years on Orkney, um, it's it. Well, there, there's a saying on Orkney: if you scratch the surface of Orkney, it bleeds archaeology, and well, never a truer word. I know, and uh, you know, having had the privilege of being there uh, ourselves, we can pretty well confirm it. It is astonishing. It was astonishing, wasn't it, Rupert? I think to um, even then before. Um, the Ness of Brogga started to be excavated in earnest, um, which is what this section uh, is about. Uh, standing there amongst the stones of Stennis, amongst um, the in the ring of Brogga, and only what is it half a mile away? You've got Maze Howe, that most magnificent um, of um, uh, burials. Uh, and not few miles, not a few miles away, um, Scarabray uh, and other, countless other uh, things on the island. We even then we were aware and were asking indeed the question: How come such a concentration of magnificence in such a small space on an island cut off from the mainland? And also worth pointing out, in fact, important to point out that the Ring of Brodgar. Up there on a tiny island, the Ring of Brodgar is the third largest stone circle in the whole of Britain. And isn't Stennis the fifth or sixth or something like that? I mean, it's, you know, it's comparable, well, isn't it? Stennis, well, the, the height of them, it, it, in terms of diameter of circle, no. But in, in terms of the, ah. the size of the stones, yeah. I would say very much yes. Yeah. Uh, and, of course, you have to bear in mind that these two stone circles are within sight of each other. They're only a few yeah. hundred yards apart. Yeah. And now, right bang between them, uh, on the Ness of Brodgar, on the isthmus between uh, the two locks, one freshwater, one saltwater, is uh, are where the current excavations are taking place. And just wow, what they have uncovered. 
See, one of the most significant things that's come out of these excavations on Orkney is that it's turned, uh, from a megalithic point of view, it's turned Britain on its head. The uh, the sites that they've been dating on Orkney predate everything across the rest of Britain. It's just, uh, it's the most remarkable thing. You're, you're looking at 3,600 BC for... Uh, uh, for this first colonisation and the main building and the, the main monument building uh, kicking off around 3,300 BC. That's significantly earlier than any of the major complexes that uh, that you know that we know about, like Wiltshire, for example. Yeah. And, of course, the other thing to understand is that this is one of those sites, as uh, so many are, where the buildings, when the structure, when the monument was in use... Um, for a long period of, of time, several centuries we're talking about. I think it, it, if, you, if we're talking culturally, it's important to, uh, to bear in mind uh, we, something happens in our heads. We think of that as extraordinary. And yet, you know, look at any church across Britain. Yeah. Uh, obviously not modern churches, but, you yeah. know, we still use sites for, you know, a thousand years. Yeah. Uh, it, it's not something that's inherently unusual. Mm, interesting uh, point you make there, yes. That uh, deserves further investigation, probably a bit further investigation or thought at, a, at another time. I, I can sense there are quite a few avenues that could take us down. <laughs> well, certainly, I mean, we will keep talking yeah. about it because it is going to happen, and I have started work on it anyway, but we will be doing a timeline at some point to uh, to to show all sorts of different things that were happening concurrently yeah. and uh, and certainly use of sites. I mean, burial sites that were in use for, uh, for well over a thousand mm. years, yeah. you know, things like that. So yes, so if we look at the the, the excavations of this hub, on the that's Nelson a good Brewer, way of putting it. Where a there are hub, yeah. Because I think that's yes. a, another. It's an important thing to try and characterise. I'm sure people have seen. Broad, um, I'm sure people have seen pictures of the excavations, or indeed uh, recreations of what they may have looked like. Uh, the uh, the buildings on the Ness of Brodga. Um, but it's important to sort of characterise in them in a way. But if you didn't know, they certainly do not turn out to be uh, domestic um, buildings. Uh, they're very much of a different character no. to um, those at uh, Scarabray, which are demonstrably domestic. Yes, true to form, the archaeologists have called the main building a temple. And it could be. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, It could be. Although I have to say, from a personal point of view, I know I give everybody the impression that I'm just wantonly <laughs> anti-temple. I'm not. I'm just wantonly anti yeah. the assumption and and certainly this looks nothing like any temple that uh, that I've seen anywhere else in the world it just happens to be the largest of the buildings yeah um, the position of the smaller buildings around this larger building to me it seems much more functional I don't honestly think that if you were making building a temple, I don't think that you would have another couple of buildings at incongruous angles to it. It seems very unceremonious 
Yeah, the, well, me. that's something that I'm not sure that the archaeology is extrapolating, and that is, of course, that um, the um, uh, the building that you're referring to, which is referred to as a temple, um, is referred to as Structure 10 um, yes. of the five main ones that are being excavated. And Structure 10 uh, was um, only built um, a century after... <laughs> <laughs> you have to sort of take you pinch yourself a bit, don't you? Was was yeah. built um, a century after the other four, and was in use yes. long after the other four had fallen out of use. So whether <laughs> yes. at the crossover or um, you know the, the others fall into disrepair or you know come back into use several times during that period, you know what the relationship between this one structure and the others was during that time and I believe structure 10 overlaps uh, one of the other structures Mm. at a a corner you know how really contemporaneous they were yes it is very difficult to interpret that's Mm. for sure I mean notwithstanding what we've said there is something completely unique about this set of buildings um, if not in the rest of northern Europe but certainly in the UK itself that sucks our attention away from down south and Wiltshire up into the north, Mm. off the shores and onto this island, effectively, as we were mentioning before, turning a perspective upside down about where wealth, power, whatever, was at that time. Yes, it's completely on its head. And who was influencing who? That's the main thing about the importance of the excavations that are taking place on uh, Orkney at this time. I, I think it, in, it's worth uh, pointing out that you know the the length of time that all of this was going on. So you know, as we mentioned earlier, so it, it, so they first colonised around three thousand six hundred BC, and uh, and then over hundreds of years got into the main monument building, where everything peaked about 500 years after that initial colonisation. Now, if you apply that to, uh, you know, any other part of history, it's like it's like us going back to, you know, Elizabethan times or Henry VIII, uh, you know, in, in terms of that gap of time. Uh, and then there was a period of decline from 2800 to 2600 BC. Um, there appears to have been a period of decline, and that they're measuring for, or they're estimating from the uh, the number of buildings that seem to have been in use. But then it all kicked off again, and, uh, and this was 2600 to 2300 BC, it was all busy, busy again. And whatever happened, and we just don't know, but whatever happened, it all came to a very abrupt end. It's uh, it, it's as if they handed over their legislative power to the, the to the young uh, the young upstarts down south, or or, or whatever. And um, what they found is that they found the the remains of 400 cattle that appear to have been killed or butchered all around the same time. 
that's a that's a big guess. You know that the interpretation is that it was the mother of all feasts. Personally, I think there's nothing to show that they couldn't all have been killed over a year or more. It, it could just have been uh, the centre of uh, meat production for quite a, a larger area. You know, it, if we remember that we've found, we found it. Remember that uh, cattle remains, Scottish cattle, have been found in Wiltshire at Durrington Walls. They found the remains of, of Scottish cattle. So what's to say that these animals weren't being butchered up there and actually meat being traded all over the country? What's to say indeed? I mean, that and uh, many, many questions that uh, we can't possibly fit into the time we have here. Um, We could talk about the discovery of a Scottish stone ball. We could talk about the fact that the inside of structure one and structure eight appear to have painted walls. We could talk about the strange, finely worked stone spatulas that are found there that nobody has found an explanation of. So, I mean, what we're doing here, Rupert and I, is something that I'm sure we'll find ourselves doing in these first episodes of Standing with Stones, and that's, you know, catching up. There's lots happened since we completed Standing with Stones, the film, in the last uh, 10 years. And I think we're, you know, we're trying to lay a foundation so that we don't spend a lot of our time catching up with stuff that's already known. So we're dealing with these um, important things that are going on um, straight away in these first few episodes. So, as I say, loads more questions to be uh, uh, asked, loads more, I'm sure, to be discovered on the Nessa of Brodka, but the big takeaway being that, you know, what we're hearing is that um, it turns the perspective, the way we look at uh, Neolithic culture uh, in the British Isles, we need to look from Scotland down, we need to look from Orkney down rather than from Wiltshire up. Yes, it's wonderful stuff. So the links will be there on the webpage. You can follow all of it. There is a lot to look at. There is a lot to look at and a lot to enjoy, actually, particularly on the Ness of Brodga site itself, where there are updates from the uh, digs when they're happening and uh, a rather gorgeous uh, section where you can explore um, photographic uh, 3D sort of virtual reality um, pictures of the uh, uh, excavation itself. Mm. Yeah, so enjoy that, follow the links, uh, and with that, I think we'll uh, move on to where should we go? Where should we go, well, Rupert? You, you yeah. know where we're going. I, 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 think, I, I, think, I think a bit of, I think a bit of lightness, a bit of frothiness <laughs> is needed, don't you? To, yes, to, it is. Yes, wrap things up, the mood. finish it off. Yes, all right. <laughs> Which can only mean it's time for Stonehead of the Month. Yes, it is. Stonehead of the Month. And this month, our Stonehead is Mo Keown. Mo Keown, uh, she has just come back from Dartmoor recently. She's going back to Dartmoor. She so fell in love with the place and the huge amount of megalithic sites there are uh, all over the place. And the which, reason... which reminds me, we, 
We yes. must go back there too. We really must go back there yes, too. Yes, yes. Is, Sorry, uh, carry on. Carry it on. is yeah. without doubt my favourite place in the whole of the British Isles from a megalithic yeah, point of view. Yeah. But uh, no, the, see, me being a grumpy old person, the the reason that I particularly <laughs> wanted never to let make, it be said. <laughs> the reason I particularly wanted to make Mo Stonehead of the Month this month is because Mo came back from this trip and she posted about a hundred photographs of sites that she'd visited all over the moor and everything else. And do you know what? Out of a hundred shots, not a single selfie was there to be seen. Whoa. And, uh, oh, round, do you know? Round of applause. <laughs> absolutely, massive round of applause. And uh, see, I, I'm, uh, I'm one of those grumpy old photographers who, well, it used to be that you, you'd go away and you'd take photographs and you'd come back and you'd show people photographs of where you'd been. But these days it's all people going to photograph uh, to places and saying, well, here's a photograph of me here me. and here's a photograph of me, me there. And me, 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 me. And, and now I, I, do that. I don't want to upset... I know you do. I do I don't, <laughs> I don't want to upset people because I know that a lot of you do love your selfies. But good grief, it was a breath of fresh air. Well done, Mo. Well done. Well done, that girl. <laughs> Look, it's all very well being Stonehead of the Month, but what do you get for being Stonehead of the Month, Rupert? That's a very good question. And the truth is we haven't made up our minds. Well, you, you will be getting something. Um, One day. Yes, we haven't quite decided what this is going to do, but we're, what this is going to be, but we are going to do a, a, a token of our admiration for your Stoneheadedness uh, when yes. we do announce it, then any of you who have been uh, in our list of Stoneheads of the Month, you will be backdated, as it were. You will receive and, and yours. You will, you will get a token of our deep appreciation. You yes. will, in due course. All right. <laughs> right, shall we move on? Well, let's We've move got on. more. Let's do some whimsy, shall we? So, yes, the regular whimsy section. And, uh, well, what whimsy have we got today, Michael? Um, We've got a wonderful piece of whimsy, Rupert. Um, Now, tell me, can you tell me, can anyone tell me, um, what you would find if you dug under Aubrey Hole number seven at Stonehenge? (laughs) I'm not going to steal your thunder. <laughs> Tell me, Michael, what would you find if you dug into Aubrey Hole number seven? Um, well, there are 56 Aubrey Holes around the periphery of the central area of Stonehenge, just inside the ditch, uh, just inside the bank, I should say. Uh, but if you dug down uh, now, down below Aubrey Hole number seven, which I think is the most easterly... It's either six or seven, the most easterly of of the holes. Um, You would find four Hessian sandbags um, filled with the remains, bones, uh, of 50 individuals from earlier excavations at Stonehenge, uh, complete with a lead plaque explaining how they came to be there. Yeah, the... The, the bones in question uh, actually were excavated by William Hawley, who was the first real excavator of Stonehenge. And we're talking uh, nearly 100 years ago now. He did a massive amount of work, virtually alone on the site, 
uh, and his diaries are something uh, to be read. You know, he, he notated everything, noted everything. But in those days, weren't quite so good with every piece of bone they dug up. So uh, at the end of his day, um, they uh, had ended up with um, quite a few fragments of bone and cremated bone from about um, 50 individuals. And uh, eventually in 1935, not knowing quite what to, it seems not knowing quite what to uh, do with them, in uh, January 1935, uh, they were buried in a small ceremony in Aubrey Hole No. 7. Why Aubrey Hole No. 7? We'll probably never know. Um, but uh, there they are. And there's nothing on the surface to tell you that. You can anybody wandering past, you know, on round the rope guidelines around uh, Stonehenge, will be none the wiser as they wander no. past uh, that particular little um, white marker. Yeah, no, but it is hysterical because you can imagine in however many thousand years in the future that they dig up Stonehenge again and. <laughs> what? What's any future archaeologist going to make? Well, this is the non-whimsical point uh, to be made here. You know, about beyond the carbon dating of the remains, there's absolutely no clue as to what the real dating of the burial, you know, or the digging of of this particular pit now. Uh, You know, it it, it would just completely confound anybody, a future archaeologist. And, you know, who's to say that we're not being confounded now in so many ways, you know, by... <laughs> well, I'm confounded, I have to tell you. <laughs> so, so... Oh, dear, because there, there isn't any record, I, I don't think, is there, of uh, where were the... Yeah. Uh, so we've got the remains of 50 yeah. individuals who were all in Aubrey Hole 7. Um, but where were these 50 individuals' remains... Um, or from uh, from where? Oh, quite where an extensive area within uh, the um, you know the Stonehenge monument. Yeah, and they're, they're not they're com- they're not complete individuals. You know, they're so, bits and pieces yeah. from different individuals. Yeah, otherwise, I don't think yes. they'd fit in four Hessian bags. But yes, so it's uh, it's extraordinary. So you so you know you could interpret that as some major exhumation and then you know a reinterment, which is of course not remotely. What it is. Yes, and of course it, it, it would have been a grand ceremony, if not some kind of ritual, wouldn't it? Mm. <laughs> you take my yeah. point. <laughs> yes, it would. Ah, ah. Stop it, stop it. Anyway, um, moving on. We have a second piece of whimsy. I uh, came across um, accidentally. I think, no, I, I think I came across this um, through a post on Twitter. I don't know who to attribute it to, but um, the artist, uh, Tracy Emin, apparently is married to a standing stone. She is as mad as a box of squirrels. Well, I don't know. Maybe not. I mean, she is an artist, after all. She has a serious purpose to most things uh, she she does and doesn't, you know, really, like most artists, are not going to comment upon the meaning of what they do. It's um, the what they do stands on its own two feet or otherwise. But the thing is, um, apparently she's lucky enough. I mean, she, uh, she has um, places in London uh, and south of France and New York and her home, her studio in the south of France, um, which is on the Cote d'Azur, uh, between Nice and Marseille, I think, uh, just happens to have a very nice menu in it. So she married um, him? And uh, one, 
She one sunny day put on a wedding dress and um, and, uh, and and married it. Well, said some words of um, adoration to it anyway. Yeah. Oh dear, oh dear. Um, so uh, you you could just it's it's um, there. The information out there in, on the internet is slightly confusing. Sometimes sometimes it gives you the impression that she married uh, the standing stone in Paris. Mm. Um, I initially had the impression she'd married a standing stone in Cornwall. Oh, right. So I, I don't know, but you know, this is the truth of the matter, the standing stone. Maybe it's the confusion of where they went on honeymoon. Well, it could, could well be. It could just be the media. <laughs> you know. I mean, uh, so do we know when she actually married this standing stone? A little bird tells me uh, it was 2016. Um, I think yeah, it wasn't a major song and dance made about it. I think she told people about it uh, at a, uh, an exhibition um, in right. Hong Kong at that time. I don't. 2016, know. And, and, and okay, well, we have to assume that the marriage is still going well. well yeah, I very just, good. I, I wish yeah. them all the happiness in the world. Very um, good. I think that's enough whimsy for now, don't you? That's enough. Yeah. Whimsy if you want to know now. more about uh, Tracy Emin and her stone, um, you know where to go. <laughs> We will. I'll, I'll put a link in, but uh, there's uh, nothing very edifying about it. I just thought it'd be amusing to slot in there. Well, well right. so that uh, that just leaves a, a few things to be said, then, I suppose, doesn't it? Really, I think uh, first of all, a big thank you once again, a big thank you to all of you for uh, tuning in, downloading, and listening to what we have to offer. We do enjoy doing it. And uh, obviously, we rely very much on your support. We couldn't do it without you. And so if you want to come along and you know, join us, be subscribers and uh, and help us really push this progressively further and further along, then do go and have a look at our Patreon page. It's at patreon.com forward slash standing with stones. And, uh, yeah, we've got lots of perks and rewards available for people that choose to uh, um, support us. And um, you can become a patron for as little as a dollar a month. A um, that's bargain. approximately 73p, I think. <laughs> um, something like that. Um, but there are several other levels, including the uh, Ballymenock level. <laughs> anyway, it's... I think one day what I'm going to do is make a little, uh, little, little vid to explain all the different levels. You know, so, that's not a bad idea. Yeah, actually. yeah, I'll, I'll do that. Mm. Um, so, what else? A reminder, perhaps, of um, what we're planning to do mid-month. It'll be the second Wednesday of each month in the evening, about eight o'clock. That will be confirmed, but uh, but I'd say at the moment it's going to be eight o'clock in the evening on the second Wednesday of every month. We shall have a, a, a mid-month get together so you can come online have a you know join us ask questions and uh, and listen in it's going to be fun yeah great so watch out for uh, a facebook event um going up uh, soon and with that it is time to say goodbye <laughs> until the next uh, next yes, time yes goodbye and thanks again see you soon bless you bye bye, bye. bye.